You are listening to Fast Growth Funding, the podcast all about helping you demystify the world of AI investments. Sponsored by EAG Ventures, where entrepreneurs help entrepreneurs. This show is all about helping give as much value as possible to investors and entrepreneurs alike. So if you like what you hear, please do subscribe to the show and share this episode with your network to help us reach more people just like you. Thanks again. Hello, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Fast Growth Funding. I'm joined by EHE Ventures co-founder, Guy Remond. Guy, how's it going? Hey, Ivan. Yeah, really good. Thank you. Great stuff. Great stuff. We've got a very special guest on once again. We're bringing a lot of great guests on the show. We've got Mark Hartley from Bankify, the founder of, of Bankify. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, Ivan. How are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. We're very excited to speak to you, Mark. A guy mentioned bringing you on the show for a very specific reason. But one thing we want to do is just go into the bit of the backstory around Bankify because it's such a great company. So, so many exciting stories coming from your road to investment. But I'm going to let Guy do a bit of a, a history lesson on us with Bankify and, and the relationship between how EHE or actually, because Bankify, your relationship predates EHE even, how that came about and, and what the road to investment was like for Bankify from an investor's perspective, Guy. The relationship even predates the, the startup actually, actually. So we were just having a quick chat before we kicked off on the recording of the podcast and Mark and I met in 2016 and Mark had produced a, a POC for a vision he had for a fintech product and was basically proved the concepts and then was looking for a technology partner to help him build it out and build it into an MVP and, and maybe even move towards a, a 1.0 version of the product. He's one of the more technically capable founders that, that we come across. So has an engineering background and had a very specific set of technologies in mind that he wanted to use. And fortunately for what was my old company, Cake Solutions, it was Scala, which is a programming language and sort of the Scala world of technologies, which he kind of focused on. And when he did a search, you know, Mark's a proud Mancunian like me. When he did a search, he found Cake. And, you know, at the time, Cake was probably the single biggest Scala engineering company, privately owned Scala engineering company in the country. So we met and had a chat and agreed that we were going to produce some kind of proposal for him. And then we began discussions about the acquisition of Cake with the company that came, eventually came in and, and bought us. And I felt as Mark was a startup, it would have been massively unfair of me to engage with Mark at that point, knowing this was going on in the background and it could affect what we could do for him moving forward. So I had a chat with Mark and, you know, we, we kind of left us at that. Anyway, the acquisition happened. Out of the acquisition, as probably any regular listeners to the podcast understand, you know, Cake was sold. And out of that, we pulled out Cake Invest, which was the shared risk, part cash, part equity arm of, of our business. We had to rebrand under the stewardship of my ex-non-exec, Ian Brooks, and he and the team with the CTO, Alexa Batokic, and one or two of the Cake members, the team that were then two-peed across into the Startup Factory away from Cake. And the Startup Factory was was formed. And Mark then started to chat with the Startup Factory. So actually, Bankify, if I remember rightly, was the first investment and project for the Startup Factory. And as you're aware now, the Startup Factory 
is fully owned by the EHG group, of which EHG Ventures is, is part of that group as well. So it's funny how these things kind of work out. And, you know, it was a terrific project. Mark was a, an incredibly credible founder with lots of domain knowledge and capability and someone who we felt could do really well building a business from scratch. And he was well plugged into the financial services world. So yeah, we worked with him and the Startup Factory built out the initial version of the Bankify platform. And yeah, and I guess got Bankify on, on its way and hired a couple of engineers who then worked within Bankify and, you know, slowly Startup Factory transitioned away. Alexa was for a time uh, a fractional CTO for Bankify until they got their own internal technical capability at that level. And I think Mark will probably his best place now to, to let you know where Bankify are and what, what they're up to. Yeah, exactly. So Mark, just give, give us a little rundown with the service that Bankify provides and how you're combining kind of technology with the financial services. Yeah, sure. So guys, kind of chapter and verse, giving you a, a very accurate description of how we got to know one another and formed a partnership. Effectively, what we do is we're described as a fintech, but I'd prefer to describe ourselves as a financial technology provider. The distinction being that what we've not tried to do is disrupt or take market share away from banks or traditional financial institutions. What we do is try and help them have a better relationship with their small business customers. So what we've built is a suite of digital services that help a small business customer run and operate their business through their bank's digital channels. So if, if any of you guys out there have used a bank's mobile or internet banking product for your small business services, you'll, you'll know that most of them are very rudimentary and they take basically the, your ability to do balances and transaction reporting and make payments out. And what we've done is added a whole set of services around that to focus on accounts payable and accounts receivable. So we transform banks' digital channels from being somewhere where you just do basic transactions to where the small business owner will run their business from. So that's things like invoicing, collecting money, cash forecasting, connecting into your, your accounting package so that you can do your bookkeeping and your matching and your reconciliations and just making it you know, the destination that you go to as a small business owner. So it's a branded service. We're not seen on that platform. It's it's branded for the banks. So currently we operate a service for the cooperative bank, TSB, HSBC, and we went, went live with Metro Bank last week, as it happened. So we've got a footprint in the UK and we've gone outside of the UK into the US. We've got a couple of US banks using, using the products as well. Brilliant. That's amazing. So I've got quite a few questions. I mean, the first one being that, that kind of echoing what Guy said about the, the road to investment. So when you were getting to the point, Mark, where you were looking to secure, you know, fairly significant investment to help grow the, the, the company, what were some of the things that you, you learned during that process about the investment journey and about what you needed to do to get ready to become investable and to be an attractive investment for investors? So this isn't my first foray into a kind of investor-backed business. So prior to doing Bankify, I was the chief innovation officer of a, a business called Clear to Pay, which was another technology provided to financial institutions all over the world. And I'd been with that business. I was 
something like employee number five or six and had been through the whole journey from growing it to something like 2000 people when we, when we exited and sold the business to FIS, you know, so I knew that, you know, I needed a, a strong team around me. It couldn't just be me. It needed to be people in disciplines that made the business attractive for investors. So, you know, I made sure that I had a finance person, an operations person, a product person, all from my previous walks of life that, you know, that I'd either worked with before at previous companies or, or in the case of Chris, our CFO, he's a, a former senior partner at, at KPMG. So we knew it was, it, it was important to get the right blend of people around me and also, you know, to make sure that as Guy very kindly said that I'd got quite a lot of domain expertise and experience in selling into financial institutions, you know, when we sold Clearspay, we had 40 of the world's top 50 banks using our product. I'd also lived in different parts of the world. So I lived in Australia for 10 years and, and sold into Southeast Asia and as well as into the US market. So I was able to demonstrate, I hope, some credibility and capability from not being a kind of blurry-eyed founder with a, a dream that didn't really understand the problems of a very complicated set of customers that you need to sell in you know they're highly regulated highly compliant so we needed to be able to demonstrate the sort of credibility that required investors to see that we weren't as i say just had a bit of a pipe dream that was never going to take off i think the other thing and the reason we went through the startup factory journey so whilst i was born and bred in in manchester as, as guy rightly says i'm a proud Union like he is never actually worked here before i left the uk in 95 to go and live in Australia. When I came back to the UK in 2005, I ended up commuting to Belgium for 10 years with Clear to Pay, which was a Belgian-based business. So I actually didn't have a technical network here in the UK and had a good network of people outside the UK, and, and you know, I, I, but I didn't have a network of individuals that I could call upon from a technology base in the UK. So that was another reason for going to the startup factory was because they provided an opportunity to provide resources in areas that I didn't have a network within. So it was actually a very nice complementary model where the startup factory was looking for companies that had credibility, good vision, good domain expertise and needed technology capability. And we were looking for, you know, that technology capability because we didn't have it. So it was actually a perfect match and hopefully I think has gone on to prove that to be the case, given, you know, how we've gone on to expand and grow, which we wouldn't have been able to do had Guy and Ian and, and James and Alexa not helped us out in that first MVP that Guy described that we built together. Yeah, brilliant. It's really great and really interesting that you mentioned like the importance of putting a team around you and, and, and setting that up. That's something that, you know, Guy, you talk a lot about on this podcast about, you know, when you're looking, you know, and any investor listening, if you're looking for an organization to invest in, one of the most important things is that organization has the team around it in order to kind of see these these ideas and these dreams, you know, put, put, put into action. Guy, from your perspective, then, when you were speaking with, with Market Bank in those early days, just how valuable and important was it that Mark had that understanding and already began to start putting the team in place prior to, you know, going out for, you know, significant investment? Yeah, I mean, it's massive. I've, I've made no secret of the fact from an EHE point of view and obviously from a startup factory point of view within the EHE group yeah, that we 
we look at the team first. We always do because it's the old adage that you can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have the team to execute it or the person in charge who understands the importance of team and has the contacts, then it's just not going to happen. So we always look at the team first or the individual first and then potentially the people that he's or they are going to go out and, and look for or employ. And then we look at the idea and then we look at the financials. That's the kind of order that we, we do things in. And actually, you know, I run my own businesses in that way. You know, probably, I don't know, five, six years ago, I, had, I was fortunate enough to spend a day with a lady called Julia Waller. And Julia spent eight hours pummeling me with questions about myself and just really digging deep into kind of my psyche and my mindset. And the idea is at the end of those eight hours that, and there's a process, so it's not kind of random, you know, it's eight, very Eight well hours of through. questioning. Yeah, honestly, right? it was like, it was, honestly, it was like <laughs> being interrogated. Sounds like the COVID inquiry. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I said, so I had good answers, Mark. That's the, yeah. The yeah. And you told um, the truth. And I've told the truth, absolutely. And, you know, ultimately what that drilled down to was my unique ability. And my unique ability is building uniquely talented teams. So I'm actually not very good at most things. And that's probably true of most entrepreneurs, to be honest. You know, you kind of, you're a jack of all trades. You can do a bit of everything, but actually you're not particularly good at any of them. But you have to be good at building a team. And, you know, I apply that both in my own businesses and the businesses that I work with. You know that with the work that I do with, with Right Business Results. And when we look at potential investments as well, the, the, the team is everything, then the idea, then the financials. Because you can work on the idea and you can work on the yeah. financials. I think it's an important thing to, to even though kind of EHE Ventures at the minute, you know, are building this early stage growth fund for AI uh, startups. AI is very much the focus and technology is the focus. But if you don't have the team around you, AI is not going to be the silver bullet that's going to fix everything for you just because you have it as part of your company. And that's something I think with, with Bankify that's done it, it done it quite well is it hasn't leapt straight into this, you know, straight off the bat going to implement AI and everything that they're doing. In fact, gone almost the other way around and building a, a great business and thinking about AI now, market, what's your kind of policy on that at the minute? How are you looking at AI as a solution for some of the stuff that you do at Bankify? As Guy said, my background is I was a software engineer a long, long time ago, very, very bad one to, to also echo Guy's points about <laughs> right. entrepreneurs not being very good at lots of different things. But I suppose w one thing that did work really well was that I therefore had a key, I have a keen interest in technology. So I look at lots of things that technology gives and the advances in technology, you know, and, and actually Bankify, you know, I actually had the idea for Bankify back in the early nineties, but the technology wasn't available and, and credible and usable at that time. So, you know, things like APIs, which we now take as mainstream and accept that they're used in all walks of life. Online accounting packages weren't available in, in those days. It was very much offline, you know, even electronic banking, things that we take for granted, mobile banking, that nothing was there. And so, you know, I've always had a keen eye on technology and looked at how technology would, would be used. And it's, not, it's no different from an AI perspective. I mean, I wouldn't by any way stretch of the imagination call myself an expert in, in AI, but obviously it's going to have dramatic changes and effects on 
every walk of life. You know, um, my daughter's studying philosophy at university and a lot of her work that she's doing at the moment is about the governance and ethics and containment of, of AI and how it, you know, if it gets in the in the hands of bad actors, how that that could have dramatic and profound effects on, on humanity. Luckily, I don't have to look at it quite as bleakly or blackly as that. I'm, I'm actually able to, you know, look at it in a way that's better for our business. And it's not necessarily what's right for us commercially, you know, in our product per se, and, and what our product does in terms of feature and function. I think the way we've looked at it so far is how it can actually help us in the development of our products, as in productivity and efficiency. And the other area that we're looking at at the moment is, you know, software engineering, coding in particular, is an area where AI is going to have dramatic short-term effects on productivity and efficiency. You know, I saw a statistic recently about if you look at the average amount of lines of code that a developer writes in a day, and you, you kind of do that with a machine, assuming that the requirements are suitable and the specifications are documented appropriately, the amount of lines of code that a machine will be able to write that doesn't have, you know, the same levels of perhaps quality challenges that, you know, maybe the case with some developers, then you're going to get a massive efficiency and productivity. So at the moment, we're really looking at it from a, you know, a productivity and development perspective than we are from a actually putting AI into our products. I mean, we do have a cash forecasting module, as I mentioned in, in my kind of quick two minutes overview of what we do at Bankify. And that is really more what I would call predictive modeling. It's not based on machine learning or AI in the purest sense of the word. So it's, we're very much looking at it from product efficiency and development than we are at feature function in the actual product that we sell to, to clients at this point in time. There's a couple of reasons why I wanted Mark to come on, on the podcast and, and, and talk about Bankify. One is that it was the first TSF investment and actually it's a terrific investment, you know, and you know, you've heard from Mark about he's got four of the biggest high street banks using Bankify's services already and also looking to expand in, you know, Australia and, and, and the US. So it's a, it's a terrific idea, terrific product and terrific team. So that was the first thing, you know, it's always nice to hear these kind of stories because it just goes to show what's possible. But also, I was aware that Bankify, because we kind of built the initial version, that didn't use AI in the product itself. And I, I wasn't sure whether you know that had changed since then, because that was a, a few years ago now. But it doesn't sound like it has. And this goes to show that you can still build a great business without necessarily having to shoehorn AI in for the sake of it. If you don't need it, or commercially, there's reasons why you can't use it then that, that's absolutely, absolutely fine. I think, you know, those situations will become fewer and far between over the next few years. And potentially, I know, as Mark said, that he's got his eye on the future. And, you know, I'm sure he's got some ideas as to what could happen, but it's got to make commercial sense and it's got to work with commercial partners. But interestingly, what Mark is saying is that although it's not a, you know, useful tool at the moment for the products, what it is, is a really useful tool internally. And that's another important consideration. The fund is, is looking to back really good companies that are AI focused. And actually to begin with, as long as you've got, there's an, a strategy around AI for the product and it might not be immediate. It might be in three or four years time, 
that's fine. But also, we're looking at how companies use AI to make themselves more efficient internally. And that's exactly what Mark's describing. And he's absolutely right. You know, coding has progressed over the, the years that I've been involved in software and engineering. There's really good frameworks out there for most of the languages nowadays that actually produce a lot of the boilerplate code that you need in every product automatically as part of what you do. So engineers have got more and more efficient using these types of frameworks and these tools. And, and even the advent of open source software and the internet has allowed, you know, engineers to share code and make code available for other people to use at no cost or on a, some of the open source licenses that are out there. So engineering has become more and more efficient. I think AI is about to change that and take it not just at one level, several levels again. As Mark says, with the right inputs, with the right information, then it will churn out code at a rate that no human could even come close to building and be able to test the code itself and deploy it. And it'll, it'll just work. So there's big changes coming to the engineering, in software engineering industry. And I don't think people have to worry, overly worry, because as I said, it, it's become more and more efficient over time anyway. And AI is just is going to take it to the next level. It just means that engineers will have to concentrate on different things and use their skills in different ways. Yeah, I think that that's kind of just the refocus, isn't it? You know, if there's a lot of businesses out there getting worrying or overstressing about having an AI product, you know, and that may not be necessary. And like, it's a great example, Benkify, Mark. You know, you mentioned the product, the delivery that you have is is very much dependent on, correct me if I'm wrong, human-led interviews. And, and at, that, at this stage, AI can't really replicate that. But if you can think as a business, if, if you don't necessarily have to think about AI, baking AI into your product, if you can bake it into your processes and your system to allow you to deliver that product in a more efficient way and in a better quality way, you know that's a hugely exciting and, and worthwhile thing to, to get involved in. And from, from any kind of AI-driven, AI-front-led company, that is certainly a qualification, isn't it, Guy? Yeah, absolutely. We're looking at companies who, you know, use it within the products, but also use it internally to make themselves way yeah. more efficient. Excellent. Mark, do you want to just give us a quick update on, on where Bankify is right now? What's coming up in the future? Where are you now? And what's coming up in the next kind of year or two that's getting you really excited about, about Bankify? The great thing is we've kind of built out our first phase, which did a lot of the connectivity to the accounting packages, the ability to make payment and more importantly, collect money from customers. So, you know, the biggest challenge that small businesses face is, is late payment. So, you know, I think the average time it takes for a small business in the UK to get paid is about 55 days, even though they only give 30 days credit terms. So, you know, people are just not collecting money and that puts a lot of pressure on small businesses and often can send them out of business and it's the biggest reason that businesses go out of business in the, in, in the first 24 months is they don't get paid on time the second phase of that was if you're not getting paid on time then but you've got invoices which are effectively or can be used as a way of justifying getting money up front through using that invoice as an asset or a security one of our main investors is, a, is a, a local business in Manchester called Pretora who have a commercial finance division that do asset finance and invoice financing as well as they're a VC. And the VC arm invested in us because they saw the opportunities to work with the commercial finance arm. So 
what we have is a, a great opportunity in, in the next months, years to finally get to that point where we've integrated with Praetor's back office lending arm to provide invoice financing and asset financing through our front end product that we've now got at those various different banks. So if you think about the combination of our product being based on open banking, we're connected to 32 banks and the fact that we've got four or five big banks using that product, we've got access to millions of small business customers, a lot of whom need asset finance and invoice financing to to grow their business. So the exciting thing is, you know, since 2016, when I showed Guy that prototype, you know, to now where we are in 2023, going into 2024, we'll actually have realized the end-to-end vision, which will help both financial institutions and and also the small business community. You know, something like 55% of small business finance is, is led by brokers and brokers obviously take fees. And if you think about what what we're doing, we're effectively providing a technical broker through the bank's channels to make sure customers can get access to finance that they need to, as I say, either keep their business viable or grow their business. And, you know, with Praetor, we'll be able to enable that and, and make it happen, which is, you know, very, very exciting. So that's what's coming along. And, and I, just on that point, Praetora don't use artificial intelligence in their credit decisioning. And there's a good reason for that. You know, when you're a lender, you're subject to fraud and, and all sorts of other things. And, you know, they've got an incredible record of lending money without having any real delinquency or bad debt on their books. And a large part of that is because they have a very, very tight regime around credit decisioning, which is still very, very human oriented. So maybe one of the conversations you, you, you might want to have in the future is with lenders about replacing humans with artificial intelligence. To Guy's point, there are things that I think AI is ready for, and there are things that AI isn't ready for. And I'm pretty sure that credit decisioning is one of them. As with all these things, it's horses for courses. It's timing is everything. And I've got no doubt that over time, AI will be ready and capable for making good credit decisioning decisions. But at the moment, I still think there's a need for humans to be involved in that process. You know, that classic seeing the whites of people's eyes is is important, you know, when you're making a, a decision about lending money and equally it's also an important decision when you're borrowing money you don't necessarily want a machine to make all those decisions there's a very emotional decision to borrow money because you're not just talking about a few quid here and there you're potentially talking about hundreds of thousands if not millions of pounds worth of money do you really want that process to be decided in five seconds and and you know at the push of a button it's it's emotive on both sides and therefore i still think there's a really important role for, for humans to play in in that decision as my parting comment just to build on what mark discussed there is that you know and i've talked about this on a podcast before where you know where i think ai is at the moment not just in the in the finance game but just actually in general and including the project that you know we're working with you guys on the perfect scenario at the moment is the using ai and humans in perfect harmony so it's a capability and efficiency in addition to the human creativity and ingenuity that's kind of the perfect mashup as, as to where AI is at the moment. There will be a point in 
the not too distant future when AI becomes very, very capable uh, and probably more capable than human beings, full stop. But we're not there yet and we're a good few years away from being that. So I think, you know, what Mark's talking about is absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. Also links quite nicely into a conversation that maybe we can save for another episode about AI, AI's role in investing and in, in finding companies to back and vet. I mean, I, I'm sure that's been a conversation on lots of people's minds right now is how accurate can AI algorithm be at churning you out good investments to look at and appraise. So probably best left to another episode. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, um, you know, we're, we're EHE, I hope to lead on that front as well. We've got some ideas about how we begin to integrate that kind of thinking into our platform. But yeah. Awesome. For the future. Wow. Well, well, so we'll, yeah, we'll park that one. And uh, if you want to hear about that, you're going to have to tune in for another episode. Okay, guys. Well, look, that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And Guy, good to see you as always. Thanks, Ivan. And thanks very much, Mark. Pleasure, guys. Nice to, nice to meet you, Ivan. Guy, we'll definitely have to catch up for that coffee soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks again for listening to Fast Growth Funding. Don't forget to subscribe for instant access to new episodes and follow EHE Ventures on LinkedIn for regular insights and updates on the world of AI investments. If you are interested in learning more about EHE Ventures or the AI Early Stage Growth Fund, then let's chat. Just click the link in the show notes below, head over to our landing page, register interest, and we will spark up a whole conversation with you. Speak soon.